Okay, good morning, and thank you for joining me on my first podcast ever, my first episode, first podcast, first everything. So, the reason I'm starting up this podcast is simply because my aunt Adele Wilhelm, she's an independent author in South Africa, and there are many independent authors in South Africa, I've learned, and she wrote a book, and the book got published, but it was never really advertised correctly or, or any in any form you know marketed by the um, by the publisher and not many people saw the book not many people found out about the book and a lot of independent authors in South Africa actually struggle with this I've, I've learned this so I wanted to start the podcast and read the book to you guys just simply that um, no university professor of literature you know I'm not I'm not exactly an expert on words and books and reading and all of that. So forgive me if while I read the book, I make any kind of mistakes. Uh, but I just wanted you guys to hear the story and just learn a little bit about my aunt and, and you know, her crazy ideas. She actually originally wrote three books. And I used to love reading as a kid. But because in school, I could read really well, I was actually teased and mocked and picked on for it. So I stopped reading eventually and because of my aunt's books I started reading again and I got back into it and I really do enjoy it, I love it. So I wanted to read the book to you guys just so you can hear the story. Um, not exactly hoping to get anything out of it, I'm just, I just want you to hear what my aunt can do, I think it's really cool. And yeah, um, I think I can take it away from there. And the book is called Dunstead. So hopefully you guys will enjoy what I have to say. Fortunately, I don't have to worry about content creation. It's been done for me. So I think I can take it away with that. So Dunstead, chapter one, the western border of Dunstead. His name was Colot. He was a nasty, sallow-faced man with little time for most human beings. His only real affection was for gold. And thanks to a generous benefactor, he had accumulated a great deal of wealth over the years in which he had served him. He had little interest in what his clients had been up to. He was never interested in why his clients wanted his services. As long as they paid him well and on time, they could do whatever they felt like. It was probably because of his total lack of interest and utter greed that his clients trusted him, which made Adam wonder why the sallow-faced man had contacted him with the intention of sharing information with him. The meeting took place in an abandoned hovel several leagues south of Westbury, the village closest to the military camp. It was early, dawn still some hours away, and Adam hoped that Colot would not be wasting his time. Should Commander Clanan learn of this meeting, he would tear Adam to pieces. He had been warned more than once to let this go, but he was unwilling and unable to do so. So here he was, shivering in the early morning hours, and only too aware of the fact that Purse was probably lowering in the bushes outside, keeping an eye on him. The door opened and a small figure dashed inside, hesitated at the door to make sure that no one had followed him, and then turned and surveyed the single room of the hovel from top to bottom. Adam was not sure whether to be amused or irritated. You came, Carlot finally said. His voice had a grating quality, which irritated Adam further. Your invitation seemed impossible to ignore, Adam replied dryly, but it was true. The mysterious note he had received telling him that Collard had information 
which could prove that Adam had been correct all along, had been too good to pass up. Of course, it could have been a trap, but anyone foolish enough to challenge Adam had to reckon with the fact that there was a better than even chance that they would not survive their own trap. Clearly Colot was alone, however, and afraid. Well, Adam demanded, in no mood for games, you summoned me and you intimated that I was correct. Correct about what? Everything. Colot stepped closer and Adam noticed that he wore a fine coat and even finer clothes under the coat. You have not been able to get any evidence, evidence, but you are correct. Well, that is fantastic, Adam muttered. But without evidence, solid evidence, your word does not mean a great deal either. But I have that evidence. Adam's attention sharpened on the man. If this was true, then it was more than he could ever have hoped for. Two years of sweat and toil finally paying off. His eyes narrowed. If this is some trick, it's the truth, I swear it. Collard seemed desperate to have him believe him, and I have a friend in Ravenkeep, and he is keeping the evidence for me. Who? Collard hesitated, and Adam waited. He could understand the man's hesitation, but Adam had a certain reputation, and it was for that reason, more than anything, that Collard had approached Adam, and no one else. Adam word, Adam's word was as good as gold. You swear to protect me, he demanded. Adam was beginning to understand the little man's nervousness and his sudden need to share information. You are in danger? Someone attempted to kill me some days ago and it can only be a man who had ordered it. It could only be one man who had ordered it. Joffrey. The very name seemed to make Collard jump in fright. Yes, he agreed. He knows I would never have said a word to anyone. My clients have always been able to trust in my discretion. But it seems that he does not believe this. Joffrey is good at getting rid of loose ends. Adam's tone was dry. Why do you think I have not been able to get any evidence in two years? The truth was that he might have been able to do better had he had more time. But he was a soldier. And they were involved in a war. He had to go where he was sent. So it was only when he had a little time on and off that he had been able to carry out his investigations. The other reason being that no one had wanted him to investigate anything, especially not the line he had been following. To that end, he and his detachment had been moved around along the borders, keeping him from getting any concrete basis for his investigations. To the chagrin of his friends and superiors, however, he had never given up. How are you involved in this? he asked. I am a procurer, Collard proudly stated, of whatever one might want or need. In this case, men. Adam frowned. Men? Mercenaries, to be more specific. Joffrey wanted mercenaries. What for? Collard pursed his lips and frowned. I do not know, nor do I wish to know. As I mentioned, I am discreet and what my clients want with the objects or men I procure for them is their business, no matter what they might want them for. Collard could clearly hear the disapproval in Adam's tone and decided that silence was the best reply. I take it he paid well. Of course. Naturally, you did not bother to wonder where Joffrey might have gotten the funds from. Collard remained silent, but it was a subject which he had long since bothered Adam, which had long since bothered Adam. Where did Joffrey get the funds for his endeavours from? 
how many of those mercenaries did you procure for him? Carlos's eyes narrowed. I refuse to say any more until we have an agreement. Adam's eyebrows lifted and he seemed somewhat amused, but Collard was clearly serious and afraid. Very well, what are the terms? I shall give you everything, solid proof of everything you have suspected in exchange for your protection and an audience with the king himself, at which time he will give me full pardon for my part in these unhappy affairs. Adam was silent. What Collard demanded would not be easy. He would have to get permission to return to Ravenkeep and get an audience with the king. Those were doable, not easy, but doable. The problem was the king himself. Marcus was a stubborn man and he had given Adam no indication in the past that he would even be willing to listen to anything Adam had to say regarding this matter. There was no guarantee that he had since changed his mind unless... I would agree to your terms, Adam said, but understand this. The king will not listen to a word either one of us has to say unless the evidence is solid and can be corroborated. Anything less than that and you will be wasting all of our time. The evidence is there and it is as solid as a bar of gold, I swear it. Collard seemed sincere. He also seemed too afraid not to be telling the truth. Adam, however, wanted more. I will do nothing on your word alone. Collard seemed to deflect and Adam could swear the man was about to cry. There was a long silence as Collard considered how much he could trust Adam with, but in the end, he knew he had no choice. Besides, he trusted in Adam's word. Everyone did. My friend who holds the evidence is named Reuben, and he lives in Ravenkeep. Adam kept himself from showing his surprise with some effort. He had heard of Reuben. Pretty much everyone in Ravenkeep has. He supposed... He should not be so surprised, as Reuben did pretty much the same work as Collard. He procured things, and sometimes also people, so it would stand to reason that these two men would know each other. Adam nodded. Very well, we have an agreement. Collard looked so relieved that Adam had to wonder how afraid the man really was. I have some things to collect, Collard muttered. I shall meet you in your camp tomorrow evening. Leave your things, Adam said, immediately troubled. Come with me right now. That is the only way I can guarantee your safety. Some of those things are in my, my most prized possessions, Collard argued. I will not just leave them. I shall be in your camp tomorrow evening. I guarantee it. Adam wanted to curse. The fool had apparently not learned a great deal from the attempt on his life, as he valued trinkets more than guaranteed safety. For a moment, Adam considered knocking him out and dragging him to the camp, or sending Purse to watch him. But in the end, he decided that Collard had to make his own choices even though he considered them folly. He at least now had a name, which was more than he had before, and if he could get a furlough back to Ravenkeep, then he could find this Reuben and get the evidence he needed. The evidence that would end this accursed war. Collard pulled his horse up and glanced over his shoulder once more. He was being followed. He was pretty sure of it now. He had suspected it for some days, but he had never been sure. His pursuer, however, had made the mistake of allowing himself to be seen. For a moment he considered the fact that it was the young soldier who was following him, or having him followed, but he quickly discarded the idea. The soldier was getting what he wanted from him, but the evidence was not with him. And so the soldier would wait until Lee Kolot took him to it. No, this was an enemy, and felt another stab of fear. 
Perhaps the soldier had been correct. He looked ahead and smiled as he neared the river. There were a few trees, but thick shrubs and bushes covered the river bank on both sides. The wooden bridge over the river was old, but steady enough. Colot was no hero. He had no intention of facing his pursuer or fighting him physically. He had a small crossbow, a weapon which was becoming hugely popular, especially amongst mercenaries and assassins, and he had used it very effectively in the past. He walked his horse over the bridge, moved it far enough downriver not to be seen, dismounted and tied the reins to a branch. He readied his crossbow, moved back towards the bridge, found a suitable bush and settled down behind it. He did not have to wait long. His pursuer was a tall, rough-looking man, but he rode a fine-looking animal, telling Collot more than enough about him. The man stopped his horse on the other side of the bridge and looked around carefully. He seemed to sense something was amiss and sat there for a long time, but Collot was patient and could wait. Finally, the man seemed satisfied that all was in order and slowly guided his horse onto the bridge. Collot waited until he was about halfway over, the, over before taking careful aim and pulling the trigger. The horse, however, had somehow sensed something wrong or was simply skittish. For at the exact moment the bolt was released, the horse shied unhappily, causing the rider to lean back in order to keep his balance. The bolt practically skirted his nose. The horse reared and the rider was thrown off, connecting rather painfully with the hard bridge. Kolo did not wait to see the results of his botched handiwork. He rose and raced back to his horse. Bracken shook his head to clear it, winced at the various aches and pains caused by the rather abrupt meeting he had with the bridge, and looked around to assess his situation. He spotted the man almost immediately as he rose from behind the bush and ran off, presumably towards his horse. Bracken cursed furiously, scrambled upright and took off after him, not even thinking of taking the time to mount his horse. Bracken's large stature fooled most people, for he could move with a surprising turn of speed, as he now demonstrated. He ran flat out, leaving his, crack, his, leaving his cloak behind and rapidly catching up with Collard, as the man threw the crossbow to one side in an effort to keep his hands free and garner more speed. He was very near his horse when he realized he was not going to make it, stopped and turned in one motion and drew his sword. He was too late. Bracken had meant to stop when Collard had suddenly come to a halt in front of him, turning and drawing his sword. Bracken had started to slow down but realized a moment later that Collard would have his sword drawn and him run through before he had time to stop and draw his own sword. So he increased his speed and kept going. Bracken collided with Collard just as his sword was drawn, and the impact threw both of them to the ground. Bracken landed on top, but both of them were bereft of air. Bracken was an effective killer, but he had never claimed to be an elegant fighter. Leaving the fancy footwork to fops with rapiers and waging his battles from shadows, he got a hold of Collard's sword, sword arm and repeatedly smashed it on the ground until he let it go with a painful grunt. But Collard was hardly out of the fight and he flipped Bracken so that he ended on top. They rolled around like that for a while, all hands and feet hitting at each other and generally looking rather ridiculous, until Bracken decided enough was enough and broke away. Rolling to his feet, Collard rose just as quickly. But Bracken moved first, 
hitting him with an uncontrolled punch which connected somewhere between his chin and cheek. His second try was much more accurate, landing high on the forehead and opening a cut above Kolot's right eye. Kolot shook his head to get rid of the ringing, snarled at Bracken, and waited in, in himself. He was terrified and desperate, and that lent him strength. For several minutes they traded blows, leaving each other bloody and out of breath until Kolot got a tight hold on Bracken. Hooked a foot behind Bracken's, and both men went down, Bracken hanging onto Kolot's tunic even as he fell. Their struggles had brought them closer to the river, and they stumbled and fell into the water, getting immediately soaked. They were half in and half out of the water, and they rolled around clumsily in said water, each attempting to drown the other. Kolot managed to get hold of a rock and pounded it against Bracken's head, throwing him off and leaving him somewhat dazed. It had not connected fully, however, or it might have rendered Bracken unconscious and at Kolot's mercy. Kolot pounced on him as he had a dizzy spell, pushing his head underwater. Bracken struggled, but he was still disorientated, and Kolot was on top of him, rendering him almost helpless. But Bracken's head seemed to clear at the thought of impeding death, impending death. And thanks to his career, which often consisted of creating illusions and lies, he understood trickery. Falling back on that now, he kept struggling, but made sure his struggles became rapidly weaker, finally lying still and praying the ruse was working, since he was now badly in need of air and mere seconds away from actually drowning. His chest burned and his concentration wavered dangerously, knowing that it would not take long before his death would no longer be an illusion, but very real. Darkness was in fact rapidly enroaching when he finally felt his felt the hands being removed from his head and the weight lifting from his body. He acted almost immediately. He violently bucked Kolot off, not sure where he had found the strength to do so. Rose turned, turned on the astonished man and pummeled him even as he pushed him under. Bracken was acting on adrenaline and fury and Kolot never stood a chance. Aside from being utterly astonished and the, at the apparent miraculous recovery of the dead man, Bracken's fury drove him, and he was merciless and relentless. He kept hitting Kolot, even as he pushed his head underwater and kept it there. He finally, finally realized that he was hitting a dead man. Pulled him upwards, just to make very sure. Winced at the broken face and dropped him again. He crawled out of the water and lay on the bank. Coughing the water out of his lungs and shaking in reaction. He had been close to death before but he had never had to defend himself in quite such a violent fashion. He was usually the one to be violent, not the other way around. After a very long time, he regained not only his breath, but also his composure, looked around, noticed his horse still on the bridge and the dead man at his feet. He contemptuously spat on the body, left it where it was and walked off to collect his horse. He had earned his wages for the evening and had no interest in what happened to the body. There was nothing pointing him as the murder pointing to him as the murderer, and even if someone should ask questions, no one would be able to answer them. Dawn lightened the sky as he mounted and rode away. Ravenkeep City, capital of the Kingdom of Dunstead. <clears throat> Some fool in the early days of the kingdom when there was nothing on the hill but the castle itself, had jokingly dubbed it Ravenkeep. The name inspired fear and loathing in all newcomers, 
even if it had proven that there had been nothing loathsome or even fearful about the place itself. And there had been no ravens within a hundred leagues of the castle. The castle had been admittedly more a fortress, but in those years a strong keep had been needed to defend the people from armies of marauders and whatever enemy had been attacking them at the time. The king, a hard brutal man that enjoyed the joke and had declared that the keep and any settlement built in its slopes would forever carry the name. Over the centuries, many changes occurred. The castle was destroyed, rebuilt, burnt down and rebuilt once more. It was expanded by every new monarch and a fairly large city grew in the valley, but the name remained. A name carried with pride by every citizen of the city. In the bright sunlight of spring, the city was indeed quite beautiful. Built at the foot of a slope in a lovely valley with a river running close by. A windmill had been erected along the river with a water wheel which was in operation year round, grinding flour and whatever else was needed. In the city, several wells had been dug to provide the people with water all year round. The city itself was fairly large compared to other villages, complete with a city wall and a gatehouse. The wide cobblestone main street ran all the way through the city, forming a huge square at the center and continuing up the slope to the large gate of the castle itself. The square housed the market on Sundays, but also boasted an array of shops from a baker to a leather maker, a dressmaker, apothecary and a large inn. In the very center of the square stood a large statue, said to be the image of the very first true monarch of Dunstead. The houses were spread out fairly haphazardly, most of them waddle and daub, but a few built of brick and mortar. The city, like all other cities, had its poorer sections, and then it had the slums, where no respectable person dared to enter. Situated above the city, on top of a gentle slope, was the king's home. In fairy tales, the castle might have had tall spires painted in pastel colors that make it look very beautiful. But this was not one of those castles. It was a huge structure sprawled over a large area and built of large stone blocks, grey and old, which gave the castle a forbidding look. Two massive wooden gates reinforced by steel frames and reinforced with a portcullis, which formed part of the gatehouse, opened into a zwinger, a narrow circling path flanked by high walls which in turn ended at another gatehouse. The second set of gates opened into the vast cobbled outer courtyard, also known as the Lower Bailey, which housed the stables, smithy, storage rooms, armory and the barracks, housing the guards. Through a smaller gatehouse, the complex opened into an inner courtyard or upper bailey, boasting lovely gardens which were flanked by the servants' quarters and the main house at the far end. Immediately adjoining the back courtyard were the training grounds for the soldiers and the arena where archery competitions jousting tournaments and the yearly competition to determine the champion of the kingdom were held. The arena was large, surrounded by well-constructed wooden stands which could house hundreds of spectators as well as a large grass embankment where more people could sit on or stand to watch the proceedings. The center stand housed the private cubicle of the king and his family. It was a massive complex, the main building itself, itself housing over 200 rooms. It was the home of a king, and as such, more or less impenetrable. Okay, cool guys. So, 
I'm just going to end it off with that. Uh, small piece. I will definitely keep reading and keep posting. So thank you so much for listening. And yeah, like I said, if you if you want to know anything, want any comments, whatever, just let me know. And um, yeah, thanks once again.